Today, we are going to be going through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 29. And here it is. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He did not deny, but confessed it. He said, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked, are you Elijah? And John answered, I am not. Are you the prophet, they said. John said, no, I am not. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you do not know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany, or in Bethabara, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And I'm going to save verse 29 for at the end of our reading, of our study. The Gospel writer introduced John the Baptist to the scene there in verses 6 through 18. Now we are going to see John the Baptist in action. In the beginning, we saw three groups are mentioned in the first verse of our reading. The Jews, the priests, and the Levites. Now the Jews, throughout John's Gospel, the Jews are going to be a certain group that the writer refers to as uh, those coming from the Sanhedrin. They were a group that were supposed to be the most knowledgeable of God's Word, by which all of Israel would depend. The Sanhedrin were assemblies of either 23 or 71 men, appointed to sit in every city in the land of Israel as a court of justice, or that is what they had the people of Israel to believe. Now the priests, those were appointed by God himself as Israel's representatives unto God. They would perform all the duties necessary to which God required of the people of Israel in order to remain at peace with the living God. It would be the brother of Moses, Aaron and his sons, who would become the first priests of Israel. From then on, all the priests of Israel would be they who were directly descended from Aaron's family. Now, the Levites, these were born and also appointed by God himself to be servants of the temple of the living God. Take note that it was the priests and the Levites who were appointed by God. It was a Sanhedrin that was a man-appointed organization pretending to represent God, but in truth had only one desire, and that is to rule over the people. From the start, we see the religious leaders of the day are confrontational with John the Baptist. 
asking a series of questions that reflected the interrogation of an intruder rather than that of someone looking to research with interest in joining in the work of the Lord. Questions like, who are you? And this was the tone in which it was said. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? What do you say about yourself? Why are you baptizing? Imagine someone coming up to you as you're doing the work of the Lord and a supposed brother in Christ is questioning you in this same manner. Now there's nothing wrong with the questions. It was in the motive of heart by which they were asked. Herein lies the problem. Upon asking the question, who are you? John asked, or John answered, I am not the Christ. John was confessing that Jesus was the Christ, which meant in the Greek language, the anointed one, the chosen savior of the world. The message of John the Baptist was one of repentance. He cried out to the people to turn away from dependence on themselves and to turn and trust the living God for their eternal well-being. That's what John's message was. And of course it would make sense that the Jews, who were not appointed by God to be leaders of the people, would have a real problem with someone yelling for all the people to repent, which would also include the Sanhedrin, the Jews. No one who is led of their own heart receives kindly the correction of their ways. Within the church, the work of the Lord will always be in conflict with the work that man sets for himself. Now, I want to make something clear. The work that man sets for himself in this context that I'm going to speak has nothing to do with the working man that gets up, puts on his pants, and goes to make a living for his family. That was an ordinance given by God himself from since the fall of the garden. But it is a blessed action. It is an encouraged action for all men. Get up in the morning, get up early, praise the Lord, and go to work. So, no, that is not what the Lord has a conflict with. I am talking within the church. I'm talking conflict with those that are spirit-led and those that have desires of their own flesh to lead, as the Sanhedrin did, all in guise, or disguise rather, to be representatives of the Lord. Though from its start, the role, the role of the priest and Levite were chosen and appointed by God, those of the Sanhedrin were not. As we read through the Old Testament of the Bible, we see that God had everything taken care of. It was only up to the priests and Levites to administer God's plan to and for the people, all of which were visible physical acts with a great and spiritual implication attached to them, all of which were in preparation for the very one that John the Baptist was chosen by God to introduce, introduce into the world, Jesus the Christ. Today, God is actively working in the life of every believer. It is when men and women of the body of Christ, when they lose sight of whom it was that put them in the position of service to God, 
God then no longer leads them. And they have put themselves in the place to be led of men and the desires of his or her heart. No matter how sweetly dressed or spoken, those that are led of their own heart will always be of wicked and selfish ambition. John was questioned here in verse 21 as to whether he was Elijah. Probably because the area where he was baptizing was the area where Elijah had gone up to be with the Lord. Notice I read from the Christian Standard Bible, it says Bethany, but in my New King James Version, it says Bethabara. It basically means in that area. Elijah had gone up to be with the Lord. In 2 Kings, we have that account, chapter 2. As Elijah was with Elisha, his successor, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. 2 Kings chapter 2. John was also questioned as to whether he was the prophet, the one Moses told the people would come after him there in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In order for me to make an apparent point, which I see to be of great significance with what we've just read. Let me jump ahead that your attention would be, uh, take notice to the question that was proposed to John there in verse 25. So jump ahead to verse 25 and it reads this. And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize? If you are not the Christ, if you are not Elijah, if you are not the prophet, notice the tone. Among the Jewish people, Baptism was a ceremonial rite. It was a practice done for certain inaugurations, like coming to the faith of Judaism, like circumcision. Baptism was involved in that. Now, the Jews assumed that from what was written in the books of the Old Testament prophets, that Elijah, the Christ, and the prophet would probably baptize when they came unto the earthly scene in order to purify a polluted world. There, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 1, it reads this, and these Jews would have known it. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Elsewhere, in the major prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25, it reads, and they would have known it. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. And the interesting part about all of these questions is that the only way to know about these biblical persons, Elijah, the prophet, the Christ, and what it was they would be doing, is that you would have to know the scriptures. Now, there are two ways to know the scriptures, and take note, two ways to know the scriptures. Either by personal ambition, which of course can be performed by any good and dedicated student, and we have a lot of those, or by divine guidance. The one 
that recognizes the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, the one that approaches the Bible in this way is the one that would understand what the Bible has to say. But as for these Jews, the ambition to lead their own way blinded them. They could not see what it was that the same scriptures they were most familiar with and what it divinely told about the very one they were questioning. It is not to say that they missed it. They were not permitted to its interpretation due to the motive of their heart was impure and not of God. A Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, from the 16th or 17th century, he wrote this, Secular learning, honor, and power seldom dispose men's minds to the reception of divine light. You can most certainly read the Bible. You can most certainly read the Bible from cover to cover, over and over again. You can most certainly know the verses of the Bible better than a Bible-believing Christian. But unless it's God's Holy Spirit that leads you, you'll never understand the Bible. When John says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John answers his interrogators. Though John was called to the ministry by God himself, he had every legal right to brag and boast about himself, yet he does not. And instead, he chooses to stay the course that he was called to do, which was to instruct the people to turn away from focusing on themselves and to get ready and focus on the one that God is going to send, the Lord himself. It is too easy to believe that we as God's ministers are of a greater value than anyone else, when in fact, it is the message that is far greater than the man or woman sent to deliver it. We, as God's messengers, and I am not only talking to the ones you know as pastor, teacher, priest, messenger of God, I'm talking all who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. To any capacity, you are now a messenger of God. We as messengers of the living God are in a great danger when we come to believe that any one of us have a greater calling than any other member of the body of Christ carrying the same message. That is a nasty trick of the devil, having people believe they are doing the work of the Lord, yet at the same time believing their work for the same Lord is of greater importance than another. The Apostle Paul will write in his letter to the Corinthians, there in chapter 12, verse 12, he writes, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Again, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry will write, Those speak best for Christ, that say least of themselves, whose own works praise them and not their own lips. John accurately quotes scripture as a testimony to himself when he quotes the prophet Isaiah in saying, 
I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is the message all messengers have. However, it was John who was specifically appointed that task from its beginning. Does scripture testify of our witness for Christ Jesus? Do people look at us and after reading the Bible, they can point out, hey, that's like that Christian I know, or hey, that's exactly what the Christian told me, and that's exactly what the Christian is doing. What is our language like in public? What is our action like in public? Do we walk in with a smile, but have knives ready to stab into the back of any potential victim by which you wish to obtain something from them? This has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Nothing. Verses 26 through 27, as we already mentioned, verse 25, it reads there, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but, the, but, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. John says, I baptize with water. This is a simple external ceremony to demonstrate an inward change of a person who has come to Christ. But it in itself has no power to transform a man or woman into the likeness of Christ Jesus. And that's what John is saying. John is saying, I only baptize with water, but there is one preferred better than I who is coming. And we will later see he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That is where an inward change actually is noticeable outwardly. Humility at its best description is here when John says, I am not worthy to loose his sandal strap. Let me explain that. You see, the statement would be understood by those of this time in age to those John was preaching to. The master of a home back in this day, or a large estate, he would have servants to help him maintain the estate. Now, there was one servant whose only job was to clean feet of the guests that would come to visit him. This servant did not only have the lowest position among the team of all the other servants, but you would also be able to purchase a servant for this position at the lowest cost, which came to be 30 pieces of silver. You're going to see the significance of that by the time we get to the end of our reading through the Gospel of John. Now, I saved the best for last. Verse 29, starting with verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 29 says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That, my friend, brothers and sisters, is the entire purpose of the Bible. We read the Bible from cover to cover to see and understand that statement. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The opening statement to the person and work of Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God, 
He takes away the sin of the world. I would like to read for you a few excerpts that I picked out upon my research in the area of forgiveness. Here it is. The Roman Catholic Church, present day, out of uh, an excerpt out of The Conversation, an online news media outlet. The Roman Catholic Church will allow priests all over the world to grant forgiveness for abortion. Abortion, one dreadful, awful, awful sin of many that are out there. But this particular article was focusing in on abortion. What I want us to focus on is the fact that priests all over the world have been given the, uh, have been granted the permission, forgiveness for abortion. This announcement came from Pope Francis at the end of the Jubilee of, Mer of Mercy, a holy year dedicated to forgiveness. When the Holy Year concluded on November 20th, Pope Francis made permanent the permission that he had provisionally given priests to forgive the sin of procuring abortion through the sacrament of reconciliation, more commonly known as confession. The Hindu believe that they are not sinners um, in need of forgiveness, but rather they are seekers on the path to better decision-making. This thought process would have you to accept reincarnation as part of the circle of life. It's a belief system. They're taught that from very young and their entire lives. In Chinese religion, it is more of a philosophy for the individual to be the loving and forgiving one towards others. Leo Zi a Chinese philosopher and writer from the 6th century, possibly even the 4th century BC, before Christ. He had come to have others focus on statements like this. Anybody who has no love and no forgiveness will only burn himself. And also, repay betrayal or hatred with benevolence. All these statements in themselves sound very holy, but the point is about forgiveness. Because in all three of these religions, the Catholic religion, the Hindu faith, the Chinese philosophy, it is up to man and his flesh to handle the issue of forgiveness of sins or its equivalent. All three of the previously mentioned circumstances are in agreement with each other in that forgiveness is in fact obtained by human achievement. However, what the Bible has to say about forgiveness is not in agreement with any of these three. It is because genuine forgiveness can only come from the genuine source of forgiveness. As we saw earlier in our reading through the Gospel of John, there in verse 4, it reads, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And also, when the Gospel writer was introducing to us John the Baptist there in verses 8 and 9, these were truth claims that were being made of Jesus Christ being the true and genuine light. And just as Jesus Christ is the genuine light, so is He the genuine source of forgiveness. I point to you again, verse 29. 
John says, Behold. Now when you read that behold throughout the Bible, it is to bring your attention that there is no other. It is to bring your attention that it or he or she is the one. In this case, the Bible refers to, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you think of lamb, as pictures have desensitized us to believe it to be. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a cuddly, uh, um, a cute animal. But the sole intent back in this day, the sole intent of raising this animal was for it to be a sacrificial offering to the living God. So I have no problem in believing that when David had such a love for this animal, he knew as he was a shepherd of sheep, raising lamb in the field, in the wilderness, he most certainly knew that one day this animal will be offered to the living God. To David, the living God was the ultimate. Everything was his creation, including the lamb, which was created amongst other animals as a sacrificial offering to him, the living God. The Jews did this ceremonial procedure year after year for over 1,500 years. So in your mind today, you're thinking, oh, what a cuddly animal. How can you sacrifice such a thing? Hey, Christianity was a bloody religion, and it teaches that what came to be, what you and I now have today, was a bloody act. And for over 1,500 years, it was represented as such. Let me show you. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10, here in verse 1 through 4, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says this, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers of the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, would not they have stopped being offered, since the worshippers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? No. For over 1,500 years, the Jews, year after year, offered sacrifices to the living God. It reads here, But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. It was impossible. And they knew it, which is why they continually had to offer lambs, goats, bulls as a sacrifice to the living God. Now, read again. Verse 29. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God, who takes away the sin of the world not to be done the following year, but who takes away the sin of the world. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, there in verse 10, it reads, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And lastly, verses 12 through 14, By this man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. By this man, 
after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Dead men don't wait. Jesus is alive. That's what we're celebrating today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our salvation. It continues. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Those who have come to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those who believe this account. Those who believe what I'm reading for you from the Gospel of John. That event is the Resurrection Day. This is what Bible-believing Christians are celebrating today. As you can see, it has nothing to do with bunny rabbits and painted eggs. Religion is man's working himself to God. Christianity, by the true understanding of its definition, is God reaching down to man, as we see right here in verse 29. The start of that is, John says, Behold, there is nothing after that. Nothing takes the place of it. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and as we read in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, once and for all, forever. Which he did, and that is why Jesus is called the Christ. The anointed one, the chosen one, the savior of mankind. So then, forgiveness is not of man, as religion would have you to believe, but rather forgiveness comes directly from the creator of man, Jesus Christ. 